for me, as, as I progressed as a therapist, I began to incorporate more and more my spiritual life and my faith. As that became more important to me and I experienced healing that way, I would invite people who were open to it to explore their faith background and then even in some situations bring prayer into the situation. I recognized the limits of my ability to heal them. I would invite the Holy Spirit or invite Jesus into the situation. And it was amazing the changes that started to happen in people's lives. Well, we have a treat today for today's episode of the Lila Rose podcast. Welcome back, everybody. We're going to be talking with Dr. Bob Schutz, who spent 30 years as a therapist, is the author of seven books, and is the founder of the John Paul II Healing Center. Dr. Schutz has done a lot of work specifically on healing from wounds childhood wounds, spiritual wounds, sexual wounds, and helping people discover true healing and freedom. So we're going to get into all things therapy, healing, all the things that we've talked about sometimes on the podcast, but from a lens of how do we actually pursue wholeness. Before getting into the interview with Dr. Schutz, I want to mention our awesome sponsor, Seven Weeks Coffee. Seven Weeks Coffee, as I've shared with you guys, is what I drink every morning. I love Seven Weeks Coffee. My husband and I drink it because this is gourmet, organic, low acid, delicious coffee that is funding the pro-life movement. So 10% of all Seven Weeks Coffee goes back to the pro-life movement to support pregnancy research centers. I just got the latest numbers and they've given over $150,000 to pro-life resource centers that are helping mothers, children, and families in need. So when you drink seven weeks coffee, you are supporting the pro-life movement as you enjoy a delicious cup of your favorite hot coffee. So check out sevenweekscoffee.com. Make your order today. Use the code Lila to get 10% off your first order. That's sevenweekscoffee.com. Our next sponsor is Every Life. I love this company. As a young mom, Every Life has the diapers that I need that are best quality. They're made very toxin-free, so they're really careful in their sourcing of the diaper. They're a cute brand, but not just a great diaper. It's not just this is an excellent diaper that's as good as any diaper you're gonna find in the grocery store. Every Life supports the pro-life movement. It is a pro-life diaper company, the first of its kind. It supports pro-life organizations like your own life action, so it's helping save lives, and it's a fantastic diaper. So there's no reason not to get for the little ones in your life, Every Life Diapers, go to everylife.com, everylife.com. Use the code LILA10 for 10% off your order. You can do the bundle to get a discount to get a monthly subscription. Everylife.com. Check out America's Pro-Life Diaper. Thank you so much, Dr. Schutz, for joining the show. Yeah, thank you, Lila. I enjoy your show, the ones that I've watched over, over time. So thank you. Wonderful. Well, tell us a little bit, for those not familiar with your work, you also host a popular podcast. Tell us a little bit about your background. Okay. Well, I was uh, second oldest of seven children and uh, a Catholic family where my parents ended up divorcing. And so it was a defining moment in what was otherwise a really secure childhood. And uh I think that had a big influence on my choosing the field of marriage and family relations and becoming a teacher and a therapist with, you know, you don't know at the time, but uh, those things certainly influence you. So I spent uh, a number of years teaching uh, as a therapist and uh, early on got married uh, in late college and had two daughters and now I have 11 grandchildren. So our ministry, John Paul II Healing Center, is um, dedicated to just bringing healing to people. Uh, we have healing conferences, marriage, and every kind of different 
aspects of spiritual, psychological, emotional, physical healing. You shared in your best-selling book, Be Healed, which is an amazing book, about some of those moments in your childhood and the experiences that you had that would ultimately inspire you to start your ministry and get into therapy. Can you share a little bit more about, you mentioned your parents' divorce. Can you share a little bit about uh, more about those events, how they shaped you, and how they brought you into this field? Yeah, I described my family as I was growing up as just very solid. I felt very secure and loved. No family's perfect, but I had a really solid sense of family, and it was extended family living close by. And so it really was shocking uh, to, to find out that my parents, my dad was going to be leaving, my parents were going to get a divorce, and uh, found out that later that my dad was being unfaithful to my mom. And I loved my dad from the time I was little till the time he died seven years ago. And so looking up to him as a role model, looking up to him as uh, somebody I wanted to emulate, it really rocked my world in a, in a pretty severe way. And even though I kept a faith, it, it rocked that too, because it was like, uh, if this is what happens to my parents when they have a, a faith life and this can happen, then what what good is the faith life? And so that led me to a lot of searching and struggling uh, to make sure uh, what I could trust, what I could believe. For a while, I was just trusting myself and trusting my own ability to to understand and, and figure things out, which probably led me into graduate school uh, in this field. Talk to us a little bit about your work on wounds. So you've written a lot about a wound. What is a wound in a human being? How do you know you what your wounds are? And then I want to hear, of course, your your thoughts on how we can heal. Okay. Yeah, I, you know, wound is just another word for trauma. Trauma is another word for for wound. And there's good work by people who developed the life model uh, who talk about type A and type B trauma. So the type A trauma is the A absence of the things that we needed. So even just affection, touch, discipline, uh, a presence of, of two parents who love you, uh, all, the, all that would be type A trauma or type A wounds. And then type B trauma are the things we typically think of as trauma as, you know, a, a car wreck or uh, a divorce or a parent dying at a young age or sexual abuse experience or something like that where your world is shaken and, and it's more happens in a moment than you remember it in that way. And uh, over over time, as I was working with people and teaching, uh, I ran across a list of wounds uh, by Dr. Ed Smith. Uh, he's the one the founder of uh, Transformation Prayer Ministry. And as I ran across that list, uh, there was actually eight of them. I saw in them a parallel to the seven deadly sins that we talk about in the Catholic Church. And and so I compiled it into a list of seven deadly wounds. And they're ones that I had been hearing about, that I'd experienced, but never really saw a, a framework to, to look at those wounds. And, and so they're things like abandonment, uh, uh, rejection, uh, betrayal, which creates fear, mistrust, uh, hopelessness, shame, uh, powerlessness, and confusion. And as I saw this list and, and, and began to, to look at its application, it was really helpful to give names to what most of us experience uh, for, 
some point in our life and actually in a lot of places in our life. There's a um, a popular book, you, I think, have heard of it called The Body Keeps the Score. And yep. um, it's by Bessel van der Kolk, I think is how you pronounce his name. But yeah. it's, it's you know, the theory there is even if you don't consciously think about what you experienced as a kid or even maybe as an adult, but often these are childhood experiences, your body experiences the trauma, even if your mind isn't comprehending it or thinking about it. What's your take on that approach to psychology and how, how does that impact your work? Yeah, I find that to be very true. Uh, you know, there's been brain research that's shown that every memory, even if we're not conscious of it, is stored in our brains. And uh, what van der Kolk and others have said is that our, what's stored in our brains is also stored in our bodies. And so we carry around the trauma uh, in our bodies, and it makes us susceptible to disease. It makes us susceptible to injury. Uh, it creates aches and pains and areas in our life. But uh, the more severe the trauma, the more effect it has in the body. And so there's a lot of good therapies now that are working through what people experience in the body. And, and even in in the Christian Catholic world, a lot of physical healing also has spiritual and emotional healing behind it. So what kind of school of thought informs your psychology? I mean, you've mentioned a few things, uh, you know, different types of trauma that you have studied and what you see, the correlation between wounds of the seven deadly sins. What would you say is the philosophy or the anthropology that underpins your approach to therapy? Yeah, I would, early on, I was introduced to uh, what then was called systems approach. Uh, which is just looking at our person as a, as a system within a, a series of systems of body, soul, spirit that are not separate, but together. But we also live in family systems. We also live in a social system. And so to be able to look at the whole context that whatever we experience psychologically also has a relational component to it. Uh, and, you know, there, there there's not, things don't come out of nowhere. Uh, we internalize ways in which we've been treated. Even genetics, we're finding out, are patterns that may have happened in other generations relationally that then get stored in the body and get passed down to the next generations. That's an incredible thought, meaning if your your grandparents or great-grandparents, there was divorce or there was disease or suicide or other other traumas, that that affects us genetically. Yes. Is that theory? And, and, and then, then it affects us in other ways, physically and emotionally also. So I, you know, I remember talking with a therapist one time and we were discussing, you know, the kinds of people that she sees. And there was this comment that they made, which was, uh, you know, an estimate. And this is, you know, from a therapist who's practicing. So they're seeing people that need her help. But she said something to the, to the tune of, you know, 80% of people, she would say, would be benefited, at least 80%, roughly, would be benefited from therapy. What are your thoughts on that? Meaning there's so much, there's so many wounds. There's so much that, you know, no one's perfect. No childhood is perfect. We are not perfect. And so in all of that mess, inevitably, people need, people need help. What are, what's your take on that? Yeah, I, when I was growing up, uh, there wasn't a lot of therapy available. And it was psychiatry. It was considered for only mentally ill people. But over time, and as our cultures change, and as I've witnessed in my practice, I think everybody can benefit from therapy at some level, because mm -hmm. it's 
who doesn't want somebody to really be able to give them undivided attention and listen to areas where they've struggled and uh, be able to assist them in that process. And whether that's uh, from a, a friend or whether that's from a counselor or a therapist or a, a spiritual director, we, we all need that kind of accompaniment. And so uh, how we receive it uh, can vary, but therapy is one way that's a safe environment to do that. I've heard the criticism from some that therapy is just, especially talk therapy, as I think it's called, is just, you know, maybe a waste of time or overdwelling on the past. You know, there's some people that really hate the idea of therapy. Maybe they have loved ones who think that they should go, but it feels like a stigma to go. They think, oh, I, I don't want to, something's not wrong with me. And what good will it be just talking to a, a shrink would be the, you know, colloquial way yeah. that may, they might think of it. What, what, what is your response to that? Yeah, there are probably people, some of those people from my generation who, that's what we would call it, a psychiatrist was a shrink, and it's a stigma. But I think that's so much less the case right now. Uh, I think there's so much more social acceptance. But there's a lot of reasons why we might be resistant to it. And what you'd mentioned is talk therapy can be a waste of time. It can be if all I'm doing is focusing on the same thing over and over again and kind of dwelling there. Uh, so we need to do more than just talk, but talking and having somebody listen is the beginning of good therapy. And how would someone even know if they would benefit from therapy? Let's say they're, you know, they're doing okay, but they have not the best, uh, they are struggling in, in a relationship, perhaps they're struggling with forgiveness. They're struggling maybe with anxiety, but they're not really like, oh, it's not clinical anxiety. Um, but it's, it's, you know, something that is still a struggle for them. Maybe they have, they keep falling into, um, sexual behavior that they don't want, unwanted sexual behavior. Mm -hmm. They may not consider it an addiction though. You know, those kind of middle of the road cases where it's not an extreme life altering behavior or problem, but it's something that's still hanging on. Yeah, I would, for, for any person, I would say pay attention to the difference between fear and desire. Like if there's some inkling to go and there's some desire to go, but there's a fear related to that, uh, just really pay attention to what, what's the desire and then what's the fear. Uh, a lot of times it, it's just getting over the hump. But it's also important to have a good therapist. And if you're a person of faith, uh, it's important to have a therapist who will recognize and respect your faith and integrate it uh, into the therapy. If you're uh, not a person of faith, that that might still be a good choice, but it may not. Uh, it may, may want somebody that has more uh, of a framework, a background that you do. I have heard a lot of horror stories, um, Dr. Schutz, about people that have gone to therapy and they were told to divorce or they went to therapy and they, you know, brought their teenager and they were told that the child should get on puberty blockers. You know, I think we just were yeah. doing an interview yeah. the other day and someone was sharing that horror story. So how does one even navigate? Let's say they think they might be benefited from therapy. They want to give it a try, but there's such a, there's a lot of chaos in the therapeutic world. How yes. does one even navigate that? Well, first of all, uh, asking people, asking for people that you know and trust if they know a good therapist, or if you're part of a church, they would recommend somebody that's a good therapist. Um, but yeah, the, I've no, I've heard the same horror stories, and uh, it can be destructive. And so there's there's good caution in that, and 
you know, I know in my own experience when my wife and I were going through difficulties and the therapist said, well, maybe you need to separate. And I intuitively knew that wasn't mm -hmm. what I needed, but it's a very vulnerable situation when you're uh, meeting with somebody and you've trusted them and they're giving you this advice and you begin to doubt yourself. And so I could see how people could be led into things that they really don't believe would be helpful. And I think it's like any kind of medical medical treatment or psychological treatment. We need to be the ones making the decisions about what we do and not hand it over to the authority of the person. We can listen to their advice. We can uh, understand it, but not not just categorically trust it because the therapist is saying it. Uh, that I, I, and I've heard too, you know, if you go through a word of mouth network, friends that you trust, and that there are also, you know, Christian counselor type directories online that are starting places too. So typically speaking, yeah. there are, there is help. I mean, no matter where you live, there's going to be some place to start to look for that help and to get that help um, that's needed. So in terms of um, the, you know, kind of going back to the role of therapy and healing, um, help us understand for folks listening, maybe they've never been to therapy or they, they kind of have a, a view of therapy and they're not sure if they're, uh, they think that it's really necessary. You made this comment earlier that you do think m all people could benefit from therapy. What happens in therapy and how does it actually help people heal? Yeah, the good questions are not, not easy to uh, answer quickly. Um, <laughs> Take your time. We've got time. That, yeah, okay. The, the first thing that happens uh, in my experience, at least, is I want to get to know the person, not just the problem. So I want to I want to hear what the person loves, who the person loves, what the person believes, um, what they're desiring in therapy, and then to focus on okay, what what motivated them to come. So the beginning of it is just getting to know each other, and it's the same on their level of being able to develop a trust that they're going to be listened to, that they're not going to be told what to do or controlled, but they're going to be uh, guided and, and helped. Uh, for me, as, as I progressed as a therapist, I began to incorporate more and more my uh, spiritual life and my faith. As that became more important to me and I experienced healing that way, I would uh, invite people who were open to it to explore their faith background and then uh, even in some situations bring prayer into the situation or recommend where they could go uh, to receive prayer or the sacraments in addition to uh, the therapy. Um, so it depends on what kind of therapist it is. Uh, I was a marriage and family therapist, and so sometimes I'd meet with couples, sometimes I'd meet with uh, individual adults, sometimes I'd meet with teenagers or children. And But for me, it was always important to understand the context of their relationships, that it wasn't just them focused on themselves, but recognizing that whatever was going on with them also had a relational component. It was both affecting the people around them and being affected by the people around them. And uh, I would always get to a point where I recognized the limits of my ability to heal them. And this is where the change happened in my practice over the years. Uh, and recognize that if a person was a person that was open in faith and uh, particularly if they were Christian, I would invite the Holy Spirit or invite Jesus into the situation. And it was amazing the changes that started to happen in people's lives mm -hmm. where 
our talking can only go so far. And we could address even traumas from a standpoint of being able to understand where the wounds are, but we couldn't, I couldn't free the person from the wounds. They're, they're talking about it. They're facing it, was bringing it out into the light, was allowing it to be heard. And, you know, we, we've heard a lot of times over the years that there's two parts of the trauma. There's the initial experience of whatever's happened, and then there's having nobody to listen, nobody to tell it to. And so therapy heals the second part if you have a good therapist who's really attuned to and really listening to the person. But even then, I find that that's not enough, that, that there's a need. And that's why we started the John Paul II Healing Center, as I saw so much happening in my practice, and I wanted everybody to be able to experience this, that we, we be, then began to develop conferences so that people can have this understanding and, and have the tools to begin to do that. It's such an important distinction that you made between, yes, the event or the circumstances that created the trauma, the wound, versus just not having someone who sees you, hears you, empathizes with you, loves you in sharing that trauma. And so the therapist can help with that second piece, like you said, but that first piece, you know, unrooting or healing that initial trauma, whether it was sexual abuse or divorce or abandonment or something, that is really the hardest part. And so Talk to me a little bit maybe about an experience that you had um, with a patient, a client, that really opened your eyes to how can I successfully help this person reach full healing? You had some amazing stories in your book, Be Healed, and in many of your books. What would be a, a story that would help people understand how that full healing can happen um, with a, a therapist involved, but maybe not being the source of the healing? It's ultimately coming from God. Yeah, uh Again, my, my mind goes to a, a lot of different examples, but let me let me focus here. Um, so let, let me take two different situations. Let's say I have a child come in. A parent sends a teenager in, and I recognize as the teenager is speaking that the teenager doesn't want to be there, but the parent wants them there. Uh, I would then meet with the parent and talk to the parent about being the best therapist for their child. But let's say let's say there was a sexual and I've ran into this a number of times. Let's say the child had been sexually abused and it was a family member, maybe a stepfather or a grandfather or a grandmother or a babysitter that were the ones who had perpetrated the abuse. And when the child comes to the parent, to the mother, to tell the mother because of her own insecurity denies it, doesn't want to face it. Uh and then traumatizes the child. So as an example of that work, I can remember I talk about this in my book, Be Transformed. Um, there was a woman who came in, and she, she was from another state, but her family had come to me for therapy. And she um, was just found out, uh, her daughter had tried to tell her when she was younger and she denied it, but she just found out from other children that her husband, their father, had sexually abused them. Uh, can you imagine the devastation uh, for everybody involved? I mean, just incredible devastation in the family. And the mom, when she found out the news, separated from her husband and moved down to be with her relatives, and we started therapy. Well, at the beginning, what was most important for her was just to be able to share what she had experienced, the trauma, just have somebody listen, and understand and sympathize, be compassionate. Uh, 
And at that point, because even though she had a faith, she was not open to her faith at the beginning. But the more she spoke, the more uh, she became open to it. And she started going to Mass, and she started going to confession. And so she was bringing this incredible hatred, rage, and shame that she felt uh, for allowing this to go on under her own roof into confession. And I started to see changes happening as she was receiving communion and as she was uh, having confession. And at a certain point, she then became open to praying. And so we would get into some of these memories that were just so overwhelming, so traumatic. And I would say, okay, can you just invite Jesus to be with you? You know, he's promised to never leave us or forsake us. Can you invite him to be with you in that situation? And as she would do that, all of a sudden, revelation would come, light would come. Uh, she could begin to see it. She could begin to forgive herself. She even got to a point where she could forgive her husband without reconciling with him, but have compassion for him, so much so that she invited him to come down and receive therapy. And when he came down, he was such a broken man. He, he finally, the, the secrets had been broken. He, he finally faced all that he had done with his daughters and to his wife. And uh, he really hated himself. You know, there's a scripture passage, it is better for a millstone to be put around your neck than to hurt one of these little ones or cause one of these little ones to sin. And he said, that's what I deserve. I just deserve to be drowned in the bottom of the sea. And he was suicidal at that point. Uh, but Did again, he face prison uh, time, Dr. Schutz, for the sexual abuse? No, no, he didn't. It had happened uh, many years earlier. Mm. Uh, and and so there was the statutes of limitations was over. Uh, but his wife also wanted his healing. Uh, you know, when she got her received her healing, she didn't want him to go to hell. Uh, she wanted she wanted him to be able to be reconciled with God. And so there was a long process of working with him to the point where he then could recognize that he needed God in his life. As that was the thing that was really missing for him. Uh, that that. Uh, he needed forgiveness. He needed to be able to find healing for his daughters and his wife and his family. And so watching that process for him was just so beautiful as he then went to confession for the first time. But even after he went to confession, he couldn't forgive himself. And he says, I won't forgive myself until my children can forgive me, which I said, that's noble, but it doesn't help them. Because if you can't forgive yourself and we involve your children here, and they're hating you, and you're hating yourself, you're going to get so stuck in your own self-hatred, you're not going to be able to help them heal. So eventually it turned into daughters coming and sharing with their mother and father present about all their pain. And they, they had had so many symptoms of that abuse, you know, from eating disorders to lesbian lifestyle, so, so many things that had affected, had been affected because of that abuse. It was so beautiful to watch God work in that family uh, and bring healing to the mother first, the father second, and then through them, the children. And uh, I didn't so see So these were for, adult, these were adult, just to clarify, these were adult these children. These were adult children, yeah. Who shared this with their mother after the childhood. I mean, they were adults. As adults, they should, this happened to me in childhood. The mother yes. separates from the father. There's, there's no opportunity for uh, criminal charges because of the statute of limitations. And then this miraculous story that you're sharing of the daughters uh, forgiving their father and the father seeking 
total repentance for this evil that he did. I mean, it's almost impossible to hear a story like this today. Yeah, it is. Uh, It was so beautiful. Uh, And without them focusing on their relationship with God, with their relationship with Jesus, I don't believe it would have happened. It was them with the church, with the sacraments, with Jesus directly in prayer that allowed the rest of the healing to happen. And I saw the mother 10 years later. This happened to run into her. She was back in town visiting her family. She told me about what had happened in the next generations and that her husband had died the year before, but that the the trust had been restored in the family, which, you know, everybody recommends don't ever trust again. Uh, you know, a person like that can't be healed. Well, in this situation, uh, there was that healing and there was that trust, and it was just beautiful to see. And so for me, I began to see through many experiences that God could do so much more than I could as a therapist. And so my job was to invite people into being able to share about their pain, to walk into the trauma, but then to allow the Holy Spirit to take it from there. And I really began to see. Uh, as I said, just really miraculous things take place. There is a statistic that uh, there's a few different of them, and you may have heard this one, but I think it's one in four. uh, There's estimates that one in four women have experienced sexual abuse, um, and many of them as children. Do you see a lot of this in your practice? Um, I have a lot of questions. I want to spend some time talking about sexual abuse and sexual wounds, and I also want to talk a little bit about divorce. I think these are two very pervasive problems in our culture and yeah. a lot of people suffering from them. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, yeah, I heard the statistics are one in five boys, one in four girls. Uh, it's hard to tell because so many don't report, so it's probably more than that. But in my book, Be Restored, I talk about everybody living in this culture has had some experience of sexual abuse. That is, has a distorted experience of sexuality, whether it's through the media or whether it's through their own personal experience, whether it's through their childhood experiences. And obviously, the more severe, uh, the more that trust is broken in primary relationships and the more violation there is, the more trauma is associated with that. So the trauma and sexual abuse is, is actually twofold. It's the betrayal of a trusted person, and then it's uh, the never being able to share it with anybody. And then it's the violation in the most intimate places of their body and soul, being violated, manipulated, uh, transgressed. And so the trauma is multiple. And we also find that with a lot of people who have been sexually abused, there was also a deficit of the type A traumas. Uh, there was a deficit of connection, a de- deficit of safety uh, for many. And so the healing even has to go beyond the sexual abuse experience down to the deeper wounds of abandonment. And so many people experienced abandonment and that made them more susceptible to the sexual abuse because of of the affection that was given there that was just meeting a real unmet need. And then it gets twisted and turned into something else. Um, So yeah, the the healing for that is is really in-depth. I tell a story in Be Healed where I saw it accelerated. Uh, it was just miraculous healing. But for the most part, it's, it's a longer, deeper experience of healing. And depending on the relationships and depending on how much early trauma there was before the sexual abuse, that healing process can be even harder. 
But I, I've seen over and over again, I worked with so many people who had been sexually abused, and I saw the healing take place, and it was beautiful. Uh, similarly, uh, with adultery, I saw so many couples reconcile and, and restore trust and restore their family life. Uh, and so, again, bringing God's presence into the situation can do a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, nothing's impossible with God, uh, is what the Scripture says, what I guess Blessed Mother said. Mm -hmm. um, a couple of practical things about that. I know people listening are really concerned. I mean, there's a lot of parents who listen to the podcast are a lot of, you know, aspiring parents one day or aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews and people just who care about children, generally speaking. What, you know, you mentioned everyone has some form of sexual abuse, even just from the media's images and portrayals and then just all of the chaos in today's society. Uh, what would be some ways that we can help protect the children that we're responsible for from abuse? Yeah, so many ways. Uh, one is uh, being really careful about media, uh, what what media children are exposed to and at what ages. You know, so many people that I've worked with have gotten involved in pornography. It started when they were 8, 10, 12. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so a parent to be aware of and protective of a child's uh, media, uh, whatever comes into the home, but also their friendships. And there's there's nothing more important than a trusting relationship between parents and children. So it's it's the whole history of that child's relationship with the parent that allows them then to share if something happened at school or something happened with a relative, uh, and it can be dealt with right away. If that trust isn't there, then the child's much more vulnerable. You know, the, the level of... Uh, attachment and connection and safety in the relationship really becomes a buffer against so much trauma around them. What are some of the things that you recommend to parents about developing that buffer of connection and communication? And, and connected to this, I also want to ask you about uh, you know, children. I, I know a lot of stories of children. You know, one of the, one of my areas of work is exposing sexual abuse cover-ups happening, you know, sexual abuse of children that's happening in the cover-up of those that abuse and how children even talk to adults about what they're experiencing and how the adults respond. But um, first off, you know, what would be some ways that parents or, you know, people who care about kids can build a strong attachment and connection to their children? Well, I think it starts in, in the womb and it's the parent's attitude towards the conception of the child is really critical. And the nurturing the child in the womb, uh, eating emotionally, you know, prayer for the child. But then from birth on, uh, just the attachment to both parents. What, what we find is children who have a healthy attachment with both a mother and a father are much more protected than a child who has attachment with one or the other. Uh, and so that's really critical. And I know this is a really painful issue in our culture, but uh, really for for moms to be able to be at home with their children as much as possible. Uh, it, you know, we've gotten to a place because of so many factors where it's almost really difficult for mom to stay home. And so I'm not trying to create guilt, but it's really important for attachment. Uh, for those years to be with mom and dad, and mom primarily and dad secondarily, and with the siblings, and having meals together, having time where, uh, you know, f f 
children can share what's happened during their day. Having a parent that's there when the child gets home from school and the child isn't going to uh, some after-school program. But all of those things are really uh, central for protection. But the other thing is just to be aware. Even if a parent can't do some of those things, just an awareness to be able to look at your children and know them well enough to see where they're suffering, see where there's something bothering them, and and you know be respectful of their freedom, but also be uh, creating an opportunity for the child to share and letting the child know that when they do share, they're going to be respected after the sharing. The sharing is not going to be used in such a way it's going to hurt the child uh, because that, that becomes devastating too. Hmm. Um, you made a really interesting comment that I think is a hot debate, um, even in the sort of more conservative circles and certainly in culture today. And some people say it's not even worth debating because the, the jury's out um, or the jury's in and it's fine. You know, women belong in the workplace. Mothers belong in the workplace. They just need generous parental leave, come back after a few months and then baby goes to daycare or baby goes to a nanny and then they're all set. What's your perspective on balancing, yeah, sometimes there's real economic needs a family has, and so there needs to be extra income brought into the family from a working mother or just the mother. Like my case, as an example, I'm doing some work outside the home. I get to work in the home a lot, but I'm doing this podcast as an example. What is your take on the right view of this, the right boundaries to have as a mother who's involved in other work to ensure that she's not sacrificing the crucial bond and nurture she to her children? Yeah, a really good question. And I just I want to make it clear, I'm not wanting any mom or dad to feel guilty about the life circumstance that they're in or any shame about that. Uh, what I do say is I think it is healthy work for a mom and a dad to be engaged in that puts the family as a priority. And so when Margie and I were having children, I was going through graduate school. We worked our schedule out so we could both be there as much as possible with our children. And Margie worked part-time, and I worked part-time and went to school. Um, With my children, and again, they have the opportunity to do this, but this was a priority. Uh, They've both been at home, but both my children have also worked in the ministry with us, the John Paul II Healing Center. My daughter, Carrie, has uh, nine children. And she's a speaker. (laughs) She's a speaker and she's a writer, but always the children. And she took a long period off of doing that uh, to to be at home with the children. They homeschooled to be able to provide for them. My daughter, Kristen, was not able to have children. uh, They adopted two. And with that, she ended up not working anymore to be home with the children. Uh, And again, it can be a greater burden. But I think when we, when, again, this is a matter of faith. When we take that step of trust with God and and do something that we do out of conscience, I think he provides for it. But I also think that uh, women having something like you're describing, something that they contribute uh, in the work world is a good thing. It's not It's not all or nothing. It's a matter of balance. And how do we work that balance so that the children are a priority? Um, any principles for balance? Uh, one more question on this topic. And this is something I navigate. And I know a lot of young mothers personally that navigate this where they want to make sure they're 
primarily with their children physically, you know, that quantity time and that they're present and giving them their quality time. And but they do feel whether economic needs or they have other work that they're doing, um, it's important as well. And so what would be rules of thumb that you have? I don't know if you have these for navigating that and knowing, okay, this is too much or this is too little. And I understand there's a lot of gray area. Um, It's prudential for families. But what are some principles that you recommend? Well, I don't so much have ground rules as much as knowing your children and knowing your family life and knowing when your children are suffering because of separation from their parents. Uh, if children are secure, I'll, I'll give you an example. When when we were in student housing, the, our next-door neighbors, both parents worked, where Margie and I, one of us, were there with our children. And the little boy would come home at 6 o'clock with his parents, and he was the same age as my daughter. And he would just cry for an hour as his mom was as his mom was fixing the meal. Uh, you know, she needed to do that. And there was a lot going on. And again, no condemnation of their situation. It was just very painful to see his pain of just finally getting back with his family and still feeling like there's so much that had to take place. It's so much harder for a mom, particularly to to care for children, to care for a home. Uh, you know, even if parents are sharing that responsibility, it's so much harder on the woman. Uh, I actually did my dissertation of the changes that happened in a family with the transition to parenthood. And one of the things that I found is the husband's work went up twice as much, the, the work at work and at home, where the the mother's work went up four times as much. Wow. So a common fight that would go on is the wife saying, I'm overwhelmed, I need your help. And the husband says, what do you mean you need my help? I'm doing twice as much as I was before. And she says, well, it's not helping. You know, that that kind of dynamic. And uh, we can understand it. And that's a, just a natural situation. But what I found in the research is that those couples where both parents were working full-time had a more difficult transition to parenthood than the ones that were able to take a leave uh, or were working part-time. And, and again, those are crucial months. And, you know, we say, well, we'll have three months leave. But the biggest attachment period for a child is from six to 12 months. Uh, and I think before three, the best uh, caregiver for a child is, is the mom and the dad. And a grandmother would be a close second or a uh, aunt who's very much involved in the family, but someone where there's going to be ongoing attachment to. Uh, Having attachment to a daycare worker really doesn't help that child's adjustment with the family. It's, uh, I know, hard for some people to hear that, but it's also so important. I mean, this is, this is, uh, you know, the classic problem in our culture today is that kids are not getting the priority. You know, they're, with abortion, they're certainly not the priority. They're actually being killed and thrown away. And then, you know, we have a very adult-centric culture as opposed to a child-focused culture where we're in this project together to help build up the next generation. Yeah. And and we've we've all bought into it in in such a way because of the pressures in the culture. Uh, So it's really difficult to turn the tide and come back and go in the other direction. Uh, and again, it's not saying that there shouldn't be good, healthy work for both men and women in the family. It's just 
where is the attachment focus? And you know, one of the things when I studied uh, when I studied the whole history of the family and the changes that took place in the '60s, '70s, and '80s, some of the writers who were more radical feminists would say, uh, "We need to not have our children attached to us." We need to make sure that our children don't attach to us because if they do attach to us, they're going to lessen our capacity to uh, be equal in the workplace, uh, to have an equal standing. And it's that's fine from the standpoint of the mom working, but it's not fine for the child. A child who doesn't have attachment with a mother is going to have all kinds of psychological issues later on, uh, either detachment and not attached to anybody or... Uh, anxious attachment where uh, they're going to attach too much to people outside because they're in such need of that comfort. It's um, it's really important what you're talking about. So thank you. And I, I think people can follow up more. What's, what's a book or a resource you recommend for people that particularly want to study attachment and uh, raising children um, and how to, how to do that in the best way with all the demands and the, the needs that are, happen outside the home? Yeah, there's a podcast, and I'm trying to think of his name. Uh, he's up in uh, Seattle area. Podcast of somebody who talks a lot about attachment. Uh, I can't, you know, some of the classic books are Ainsworth and Bowlby, but I, I can't think of a good book that I would recommend. Maybe The Life Model uh, mm-hmm. would be a good book, uh, looking at the developmental needs. Uh, and in my book, Be Restored, I have a chapter talking about human development and that might be helpful also i have one more question on on sexual abuse to close that out and then with the time we have left i do want to talk about a a divorce and um healing from that so with all the sexual abuse that's happening in the culture and so many kids facing it there are and i know so many stories because we study it at live action i studied it in my uh, journalism over the last decade, there are children who never talk about what they endured. And maybe later on it manifests um, and they'll share as an adult, or they're just acting out so much as a kid that they end up in the therapist's office, therapist's office. And that's when it's finally discovered. Um, And then there's cases where people say, or people accuse the child of somehow misleading uh, people, meaning the child maybe is not intentionally trying to cause harm, but uh, there's cases where I've heard, well, is the child misremembering or is the child, um, is the child always right if the child reveals that they endured this? What's your your take on this? Yeah, we've really swung on both extremes in, a, in an unhealthy way. One was denial that any child had been sexually abused, and so we don't believe any of the reports. And then there, there came a point where... Uh, reporting of sexual abuse became such that it could be used as a weapon by the child uh, against a parent that they resented or against somebody else that they resented. Uh, And then there was all the false uh, memory claims, which I think were not, mostly not legitimate. They were just manipulations in court to to keep the child quiet, to protect the abuser from being uh, arrested. Meaning um, if a child shares that memory of being abused and it's used in a court case, when the um, opposing side says, well, their child is just inventing that and misremembering that, you're saying that's actually not the case. The child's not going to be up there lying about a memory. They're telling the truth. 
Yeah, unless, again, unless it's being used to manipulate and punish the parent for some reason. But again, what's happened that they want to do that? And that's um, pretty rare that that would, is that pretty rare in your experience? Yeah, in my own personal experience, that's not very often. I've seen it maybe once or twice. Uh, so typically, the if there's a, a a revealing from a child of, of any kind, or even an adult talking about their childhood, you found that 99.9% of cases, they're telling the truth. This is a real serious thing that needs to be addressed. Yeah, I'm, I'm usually very slow with somebody who's revealing a memory that's been repressed till we, I validate the process of them expressing it and facing it and walking through it. But before they take the next step, I want them to have a real confidence that the memory is real and that they have validation. And usually there'll be validation of it in lots of ways. But, uh, you know, sometimes people can be influenced by something they read or something they watched mm -hmm. on TV or something like that. And it explains for them why they have this resentment towards a parent. And it may or may not be that there was sexual abuse there. But I would say my principle as a therapist was twofold. One is always trust what the person's telling me until we find out it's not true. But never trust it until we find out it's true. Mm. So it's it's trusting in the process. Let, let's keep going until you know. Uh, but let's keep going, you know, because no child wants to face that trauma. Uh, and so when you see somebody beginning to uncover deep trauma like that, the level of pain that they're in, the level of fear that they're in, the level of of their whole body shaking, you know they're not making, this isn't an act. There, there's some trauma there that you need to listen to. And we just want to create a safe environment to draw it out as a therapist mm -hmm. until, until they can know. And then, and then they go from there. You mentioned, Dr. Schutz, uh, about divorce earlier. And in your life, the trauma of divorce led to you going on this amazing journey and building the center and building your practice, writing the books that you've written. It's incredible how God used a trauma to ultimately bring you to do so much good for other people. There's a popular cultural narrative today that divorce is not a big deal that it actually can yeah. be better for the kids to divorce if the parents are fighting or they don't really like each other. And I'm not talking about extreme situations of abuse. So I'm going to set that aside. If there's like abuse in the home where there's physical violence, where there's, you know, emotional terror, terrorizing happening. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about we fell out of love. We're incompatible. Um, there's an affair. Those cases, which are the majority of cases today. Yeah. What yeah, is your response to that? Yeah, let me put it this way back in terms of the child's nature. So the, in the scripture, it talks about the two shall become one flesh, right? And that relationship between mother and father, that sexual intimacy, fully becomes one flesh when a child is born. When a child's conceived, then a child's born. But it's not just a physical reality. It's not just that the child carries both parents' DNA. It's the child carries both parents' affection and nurture and heart. And so when parents even begin to fight and the child feels the tension in the home, that child feels a tearing of their heart. And when a when a child when a parent's divorce and that bond between mother and father is broken, the child 
actually gets a broken heart. Their heart is ripped apart. And so many of the early studies on divorce were looking at things like sports performance and school performance and intellectual IQ and all those things. And those aren't the things that are affected. What's affected is the capacity to trust, the capacity to relate at a heart level, the capacity to give yourself emotionally to another. Uh, and so many children of divorce are wounded in those ways. And if they don't go through a healing process, they stay stuck in that way. You know, I was sharing about my own story. It was 13 years before I began to see the effects of that in my relationship with my wife. You know, we had things that we were dealing with, but it was largely the unhealed pain of my divorce, my parents' divorce, that led me to wall off and protect my heart whenever tension came, whenever anxiety came. And it wasn't until I entered into the deeper trauma of the abandonment and betrayal uh, and the healing of that, and, and again, that's an ongoing healing, but the, you know, the, the substantive healing of that, could I then open my heart again and trust? And that's how children, you know, so many of my brothers and sisters took a long time to get married because they had a hard time trusting marriage. It's also interesting that my parents, my mom had seven brothers and sisters, and six of the seven in the 70s and 80s got divorced after my parents did. And so there's also this effect, not only in the child's life, but in the in the siblings and the generations, you know, because marriage is a bond with a whole family. And when that bond is broken with the family, it has a shattering effect, not just for the children and the spouses, but for the brothers and sisters and the extended family. Uh, it's It breaks the fabric of of relational trust. There's probably a lot of people listening who have been touched by a divorce. Virtually, I would say every family in one way or another, you know, family system, extended family has been touched by divorce today. I think more children are born today to single parent households than to an intact family. Yes. That's how pervasive this is. What's your advice for, you know, the hope that you have to offer? I know that you have a lot because yeah. of your work to people who have been hurt by divorce. Yeah, I, I'll give you an example from a woman but I had actually counseled her parents and just maybe one or two sessions and they got divorced. And then I had this daughter in class when I was teaching at a community college and she let me know that her parents had been married and divorced three times. And she said, I'm never going to get divorced. And I said, that's good. Uh, you you recognize the pain of it. She says, I'm never going to get married. I said, so you're never going to have children? Oh, no, I'm going to have children. I'm just never going to get married. And I said to her, can you hear what you're saying because of the pain that you've gone through that you haven't healed from? And I get it. I really understand it personally. You're not going to have your child go through that pain so that you're not going to even provide your children with a stable home and marriage so that child could grow up in a healthy two-parent relationship that you longed for in your heart. I said, that's not healing, that's self-protection. And so that's really the key in, in the healing process is we first of all acknowledge not that we're going to solve it by the decisions we make. Those are called inner vows that usually don't help us at all. They're, they're resolutions made out of fear. But what, what's really helpful is when we say, this is the effect that's happened in my heart. I don't want to continue to repeat that. That was what was my motivation. I didn't want my children and my wife 
to experience what I saw my mom and my dad and my brothers and sisters and me experience. So I was going to do everything I could to work through that pain, to come to the other side of that. And that really motivated my whole professional life as well. Well, what's so hopeful is that there is hope, that there is healing, and that's the entire scope of your ministry is be healed. You can be healed. I yeah. love this conversation, Dr. Schutz. It's really beautiful. I hope we can have you back on the podcast. There's so much more to talk about here. How can people find your work and your 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 writing? Yeah, John Paul II Healing Center. It's jpiihealingcenter.org. And we have talks, uh, we have conferences, we have books, we have uh, workbooks. Uh, our just whole ministry is dedicated to bringing healing uh, and there's so much encouragement that's there as people enter into that. And if they're not ready for therapy, this might be a great way to enter into the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think in many ways it's better than therapy because it's grounded in a in a solid anthropology of who we are as human persons and the church's teaching. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Schutz, for your ministry and for doing the podcast with me today. Yeah, thank you, Lila. I appreciate everything you're doing, too. <laughs> thank you. All right.